Father, I pray that you would cause the magnitude of your greatness and the enlargement of our joy to free us from all provincialism, whether it's family provincialism or ethnic provincialism or church provincialism or denominational provincialism or national provincialism, that you would make your people the most globally oriented people in the world. Use us, O oh God, to gather your elect from all the peoples of the world and hasten the day of its completion, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. The title I was assigned is Gulping, Gulping at the River of God's Delights. It's based on a combination of a quote from the Bible and a quote from Edwards. If you add in the subtopic of the conference about not restraining your appetites. Here's the Bible text, Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. The text from Edwards is from a sermon in 1743 on Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what that verse says. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh, my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends. Drink. Be drunk with love. That's where the word indulge comes from. Here's what Edward says. Doctrine. Persons need not and ought not set any bounds to their spiritual and gracious appetites. <laughs> Love it. Then he expands the doctrine like this. There is no such thing as any inordinateness in holy affections. There is no such thing as excess in longings after the discoveries of the beauty of Christ or greater degrees of holiness or enjoyment of communion with God. Men may be as covetous as they please, if I may so speak, after spiritual riches as eager as they please to heap up treasure in heaven, as ambitious as they please of spiritual and eternal honor and glory, as voluptuous as they please with respect to spiritual pleasure. So far, Edwards. That's the heart of Christian hedonism, namely that it's not just that you have permission 
but you are obligated to pursue your maximum joy in God. Persons need not and ought not. That's right. They ought not set any bounds to their spiritual and gracious appetite. So here's my definition of Christian hedonism today. Since God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, therefore, in everything we do, we should always be pursuing maximum satisfaction in God and striving to take as many people with us into that satisfaction as we can, even if it costs us our lives. That's my definition of Christian hedonism. And there are, of course, other definitions of that word hedonism that we don't agree with. Historically, one of the meanings of hedonism has been a philosophy that says we determine what is right by what gives us pleasure. And we emphatically do not mean that, nor do we think that historically that was its main meaning. In my 1961 high school Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, hedonism is defined as, quote, a living for pleasure. In the 2011 American Heritage Dictionary, definition number one, a pursuit of or devotion to pleasure. Click online yesterday, probably the same today, at dictionary.com, and definition number two is a devotion to pleasure as a way of life. And that is precisely what I mean by the word hedonism. And I will immediately insist upon the radical position that the only pleasures that oblige us to seek them, that is the only ones we're morally obligated by God to seek, are ones you cannot feel until you are born again. They are spiritual pleasures in all that we do, made possible by the creation of a new heart. Seems to me that anyone who agrees with the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man, namely man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, would have to agree that the enjoyment of God and the pursuit of it is an ultimate duty for every human being. Christian hedonism, in other words, is not optional. It's not one way of life that you can choose among others. It is the heart of what it means to be a Christian to be saved. You're not saved if you're not a Christian hedonist. You don't have to use the term. Christian hedonism goes so far as to say that if you don't pursue your maximum pleasure in God, you cannot worship Him. 
And if you don't pursue your maximum pleasure in God, you cannot love people. Loving people and worshiping God are what Christian hedonism is designed to make possible. So we're not talking about something marginal. When we talk about Christian hedonism, we're talking about the very heart of a Christian. And it's a very radical thing. It's very threatening to nominal Christians. Very threatening. Because it says we must experience a miracle from God before we can taste the pleasures we are required to enjoy. That's very threatening to autonomous human beings. There are two reasons why we must have a miracle. That is, Christian hedonism is supernatural or it's nothing. The first is Satan and the second is sin. Satan is blinding you, apart from the Almighty Holy Spirit, he's blinding you and me from seeing what we must see in order to savor, as we must savor, to be a Christian. 2 Corinthians 4.3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world... Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And Christian hedonism says that the glory of Christ, which Satan blinds us from seeing, the glory of Christ revealed in the gospel is the most beautiful reality, the most satisfying reality in the universe. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I might gain Christ. That's what happens when you see it. And Satan is devoting all of his energy to keep that from happening. Second is sin. This is the second reason why we must have a miracle happen in our lives, a supernatural intervention. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, what's that? That's who you are before you're born again. That which is born of the flesh is just flesh. It's natural. That which is born of the Spirit has a living spirit. And you have no spiritual tastes until you're born again. And therefore, a miracle must happen to triumph over the bondage of my will and the deadness of my spirit, or I'm going nowhere in Christianity or Christian hedonism. So we have to have a miracle happen to us. So because of these massive realities, sin and Satan, we're not talking about something marginal here. 
We're not playing language games, not trying to be cute, not dealing with peripheral matters. We're dealing with life and death, heaven and hell, the heart of the Christian life, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be born again. The new birth is the creation of spiritual appetites for God, for His Word, for His ways. The new birth is the creation of new capacities to see the beauty of Christ as more desirable than anything. Do you? The new birth is the creation of new capacities to enjoy the beauty of Christ and be satisfied by it above all things. Here's what 1 Peter does. If you start at chapter 1, verse 22, and go to chapter 2, verse 3, get rid of that chapter division, you see that we're born again in verse 22, like um, born again by the living and abiding Word. And then in chapter 2, he says, like newborn infants. So he's picking up on, on the new birth. Like newborn infants, desire, command, desire the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's what happens in the new birth. A taste is awakened that did not exist before. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. My chains fell off. Blinders fell off. Therefore, the new birth enables us to fulfill the obligation to indulge our spiritual appetites with no bounds. And the question is, is it biblical? Does the Bible teach that it is your duty 24-7, do it in your dreams. It is your duty in all your waking moments, at least, to pursue your maximum joy in God, in everything you do. Is that in the Bible? It is. And I'll give you eight arguments for it. And then we will... Uh, Look at the future of Christian hedonism. One, and I'll just go really fast through these, I think. Some of them are too good to go too fast. We are commanded to pursue our satisfaction in God. Psalm 100, verse 1, serve the Lord with gladness. Not an option. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord Again, I say, rejoice. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. These are commands. These are not options. Number two, that was a short one. We are threatened with terrible things if we will not be happy. Deuteronomy 28, 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart, therefore you will serve your enemies. That's scary. Number three, 
The nature of saving faith requires the pursuit of our joy in God. The nature of saving faith. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe, that's what faith does, must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him or you don't have faith. If you don't come to God as a rewarder, you don't have faith. If you don't come to God expecting to find satisfaction in Him, you don't have faith. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So I put coming and believing as parallels and define faith as the coming of the soul to Jesus for the satisfaction of my soul's longings. That's what faith is. There is no saving faith that does not cleave to Jesus as its supreme, all-satisfying treasure. This is why it's radical and threatening. I mean, you grew up in a church where all the language of faith was decisionistic. This is a foreign language to you. And it's all over the Bible. I grew up in such a church. This was glorious to discover. For the nature of evil teaches the the pursuit of satisfaction in God, the nature of evil. Jeremiah 2, 13, 12 and 13, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, for my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So how would you define evil? The root of evil is that people are totally devoted to leaving God as the fountain of living water. And totally devoted to getting it another way, any way but in Him. That's evil. That's the greatest outrage of the universe. So... If you understand evil, you know what your job is. Find the fountain. Or all you do is sin. Number five, the nature of conversion teaches the pursuit of satisfaction in God. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found, covered up, and then in his joy. I must have read that verse a hundred times and not no, noticed 
that phrase. In his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. What does that mean? The king is worth everything. That's what that means. To be converted is to stumble upon a treasure in a field by the Holy Spirit, look down and say, that's my life. I will lose everything to have that. That's what being a Christian means. This is not peripheral. This is not stage two Christianity. This is conversion. Number six, the call for self-denial teaches the pursuit of satisfaction in God. Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. But what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The reason we have to take up our cross and deny ourselves is not because we're liable to have too much pleasure in God. So we need a little, bit of, a little bit of suffering thrown in. The reason we have to take up our cross and deny ourselves is because we are so liable to find our pleasures elsewhere. Not been a Christian for 60 Four years, and every day I must deny myself my bent to seek pleasure elsewhere. The corruption of the human heart does not need a conversion story out of drugs. It just needs to look in the mirror at age 70. Where would we be without self-denial? In love with the world, that's where we'd be. Suicidal pleasures, that's where we'd be. And you will never outgrow the need for that command. Die, Christian, every day. Put to death what is earthly in you. And don't think You've given up Christian hedonism. <laughs> it is all about joy. It's all about, oh, more of you, more of you, none of that. I'm not going to be killed by that. I don't care how good it feels. So, the teaching of Jesus about self-denial teaches you to pursue your joy where it is, not where it isn't. Flannery O'Connor, short story writer, novelist, described the connection between self-denial and the quest for joy like this. 
always you renounce a lesser good for a greater. The opposite is what sin is. Picture me with my ground teeth stalking joy, fully armed, for it is a highly dangerous quest. Oh, is it ever? It may cost you your life. It may cost you everything in this world. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If someone offers you 80 years of pleasure in this world, then eternal misery, you better hate your life in this world. <laughs> or you're not a Christian hedonist. You're a fool. Number seven, the demand to love people teaches the pursuit of satisfaction in God. The demand to love people. This is the one I would really like to spend an hour on. But Christian hedonists have discovered that only when you take hold of full and everlasting joy in God will you be able to endure the costs of love for the world, for the lost, for your wife, for your kids. I promise you. Marriages don't unravel because Jesus is becoming more precious. They don't. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross and bought his bride. Christian hedonists have also discovered that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said that. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You lay your head on the pillow at night after getting, 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 or you lay on your, your head on the pillow at night after giving, 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 which night you're going to sleep <laughs> really deep, really well. And Christian hedonists have discovered how joy rises to the point of overflow from the Macedonians. We've, we've learned this from the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8. This is my favorite verse about Christian hedonism and love. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. <laughs> That's the book about love and Christian hedonism. We're abundance of joy 
in poverty and affliction, which means the joy's not coming from prosperity and the joy's not coming from comfort. Where's it coming from? Verse 1 is coming from the grace of God. They met God. Their sins are forgiven. They have eternal life. What do they need money for? Let me die the death. A thousand deaths let me die. Oh, God give us such evangelism. We think we've got to sell the gospel. Paul didn't sell it in Macedonia. God gave joy so overflowing that in poverty and affliction they were generous to the poor and asked if another offering could be taken so they could give more out of their poverty. I just want to be like that. Period. I want to be a Christian hedonist who's so happy in God and His promise, great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice in that day when they persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. You talk about self-denial, I will will do every self-denial I can until that happens to me until that reward means that much, I pray I would. You can pray it too. Lastly, number eight, the the demand for, to glorify God, the demand to glorify God teaches the pursuit of satisfaction in God. If this weren't true, I would be doubtful of all the others because God's ultimate goal is to glorify himself, and if pursuing joy in God doesn't glorify him, then there's no such thing as Christian hedonism. Philippians 1.20, it is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be magnified, glorified in my body, whether by life or by death, because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain, final and total satisfaction in Jesus. Which means that the way, the way Paul saw Christ being magnified or glorified in his death was that death would be experienced as the gain of satisfaction in Christ. Are you with me? Say it again. Christ would be glorified in Paul's death because in Paul's death he would be satisfied in Christ. That's how it works. That's how the verse works. And that's how your heart works and that's how the world works and the universe. So my answer to my question is yes, the Bible does teach that we are duty-bound as Christians to pursue our maximum joy in God all the time, in all that we do. We dare not set any bounds to our spiritual appetites. We dare not think that we can worship God, glorify God, 
or love people if we abandon this pursuit. So, here's my definition again. Since God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, therefore, in everything we do, we should always be pursuing maximum satisfaction in God and striving to take as many people with us as we can into that satisfaction, even if it costs us our lives. And it will cost some of you your life. Now, this seminar is called The Future of Christian Hedonism. So I gave some thought to the future. Um, And I want to give you 15, uh, two sentences each, don't worry. (laughs) It's like 30 more sentences. That's not a lot. And that's true. Each has two sentences. I structured each one of them. So 15 two-sentence bullets about what I think the future of Christian hedonism is and what it depends on. And I hope that many of you, a lot of younger folks here, and a lot of you are thoughtful younger folks who wonder what to do with your creative energies. And I hope, I hope you will hear ideas for articles and blogs and books and sermons that need attention, okay? So when I speak of Christian hedonism having a future, I mean more and more people understanding and embracing Christian hedonism as true being gripped by it in their souls and then building their lives on it. And I mean more and more churches and institutions being formed and shaped by these convictions. So here are my 15 summary convictions about the future, two sentences each. One, the future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if those who embrace Christian hedonism embrace it because they see it in God's inerrant and authoritative word, not because it appeals for other reasons. Therefore, the future must be one of unceasing rigor in showing the roots and implications of Christian hedonism from the Bible. Number two, the future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it is increasingly recognized that it has been believed and embraced over the centuries by wise and faithful Christian thinkers and servants of the church. Therefore, the future of Christian hedonism must be one of expanding historical study to show that this is so and how these truths have borne fruit wherever they've been believed. Number three, the future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it moves people to feel a burden for perishing sinners entering an eternity of misery, not joy, and if it stirs up the saints to share the best news in the world. 
Therefore, the future of Christian hedonism must be marked by leaders who draw out its empowering impulses for fruitful evangelism. Four, the future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if, if the greatness of its vision of God liberates the Christian mind from provincialism to see the global implications of God's purposes and to settle for nothing less than a life that counts for the least reached nations of the world. Therefore, the future of Christian hedonism must show that God will use it to create and sustain churches with unwavering global vision. Number five, <clears throat> the future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if God uses it to create and sustain self-denying, risk-taking mindsets that empower people to do uncomfortable and dangerous things for the good of others. Therefore, the Christian, Christian hedonism of the, of the future must be heralded by those who see and expound the radical nature of cross-bearing for the greater joy. My heart sang while Jason was describing how 25 by 25 is rooted in Christian hedonism a half hour ago. That was it. Number six, the future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it doesn't fall prey to the distortion of being a soft prosperity teaching that softens the cushion of the rich rather than empowering the poor. Therefore, the Christian hedonism of the future must not be the special privilege of the wealthy but widely embraced across cultures and classes. Seven, the future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it proves to be the bulwark and balm for individuals and families who must endure unremitting misfortune and suffering in this life. Therefore, the future of Christian hedonism must be shown with insightful and sensitive biblical thinking to be God's wise and strong and tender way of giving meaning and hope and perseverance to those who suffer. Number eight, the future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it empowers young adults to be unashamed of personal holiness and the rejection of worldliness and the embrace of spiritual disciplines. Therefore, the future of Christian hedonism must show that such counter-cultural, even counter-evangelical cultural pursuits are radically gospel-rooted, joy-driven, non-legalistic, and socially beneficial. Number nine, 
The future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it doesn't go off the rails in the other direction of demonic asceticism. That phrase is from 1 Timothy 4.1. In which joy in God is sought only in abstaining from such pleasures as food and marital sex rather than mingling feasting and fasting. Therefore, the future of Christian hedonism must think deeply about the way sin and Satan turn innocent pleasures into deadly detours from joy, which I expect to hear from Joe Rigney tomorrow morning because he's already done it in his book. Number 10, the future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it is used by God to create Christ-exalting community rather than isolating Christians in their silos of private contentment with God. Therefore, the future of Christian hedonism must show the biblical foundations of the truth that God intends for joy in Christ to be expressed and sustained by Christian camaraderie. Eleven. The future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it serves to make clear the radically supernatural nature of becoming and being a Christian. Therefore, the future of Christian hedonism must be marked by biblical efforts to make plain the deadness of the human spirit, the bondage of the human will, apart from sovereign grace, with all that implies about the supernatural creation and continuance of Christ-exalting joy. Number 12, the future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it proves to provide theological, spiritual, and ethical categories for a deeper diagnosis of cultural disintegration and corruption and a wiser remedy for our intractable problems. Therefore, the future of Christian hedonism must have its share of culturally and politically minded thinkers who can see the profound relations between God-centered personal joy and God-ignoring social dynamics. Thirteen. The future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it proves to be a widespread antidote in the Christian church around the world. I can't tell you how my heart grieves praying through Operation World, which I do every day. Here's the table, here's Poland, 90% Christian, here's Italy. 95% Christian. Here's the Philippines, 90% Christian. Are you kidding me? I know what that means, and it's deadly. America, 40% evangelical. 
if God would be pleased to let Christian hedonism provide an antidote for nominalism in the church around the world. Therefore, the the future of Christian hedonism must be so biblically and clearly taught that it is seen to be the same as true Christianity. That's all it is. Rather than one option among many. 14. The future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it provides life-giving focus and energy for tens of thousands of pastors who see in it a clear, compelling focus for a lifetime of never-boring supernatural ministry. Therefore, the future of Christian truth of Hebrews 13, 17, that a begrudging pastor going about his duties is not good for his people. I just want to bear personal witness to you young aspiring pastors. It's enough for a lifetime of never boring supernatural ministry. You never are ignorant of what you're about in every service. We are workers for your joy. If it costs you your life to walk into the pulpit that way week after week is a thrilling thing. For decades, it never gets old. Fifteen, that is the last one. (laughs) Though since I wrote it, and now I thought of some more. (laughs) Q&A. Finally, the future of Christian hedonism will be advanced if it makes the people of God desperate for a great revival and brings them to their knees in continual prayer for what only God can do in freeing millions of people from bondage to pleasures that will not satisfy. Therefore, the future of Christian hedonism will be led by people of unceasing prayer. So let's pray. Lord Jason began, I end, with you are our God, earnestly we seek you. Our soul thirsts for you, our flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water, come. Satisfy our souls with your steadfast love and grant us to know the kind of fullness that overflows to the blessing of others no matter the cost. Do this for us now, I pray, and for generations to come. In Jesus' name, amen.